Welcome to Suffolk Security Chat Chat 180 for the 7th of January, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski coming to you from lovely Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. I'm very glad you're back because, as you know, the last two weeks I've been in your seat and uh, it's much harder than you think being the presenter. Well, I, I thought uh, it was pretty nice, actually. Not uh, doing the podcast for a couple of weeks was a good reprieve, and I enjoyed listening, so uh, I thought it worked out splendidly. Yes, I thought you might say that, but uh, we're back to normal, so uh, give me your best shot, dude. Well, let's see what uh, if this is the new normal, which is uh, Google's Project Zero uh, quite controversially uh, released a zero-day vulnerability in uh, Windows 8.1. For people that aren't familiar, Google's Project Zero is uh, a team of folks at Google who have kind of been given the mission to find security vulnerabilities in, I guess you could say, the products that run the web or the products that run the internet. And hopefully by finding those vulnerabilities and working with vendors to fix them, you know, we make the web a safer place. Part of the policy, though, is that if the vendor hasn't responded within 90 days, Google automatically releases that bug publicly. So uh, what do you think? Well, it's a tricky one, Chester. When I saw that particular one, because of the timing of it, it was the day before New Year's Eve. And yes, I know that, you know, security problems sleep for no man, etc., etc. I just thought, gosh, why are they doing it right then and there? Couldn't they have waited did they really need to drop the hammer on their report of the vulnerability and include proof of concept code? I guess the flip side is that the idea of this automatic dead man's handle, if you like, you know, there's this 90 days to pull the trigger and then it gets pulled regardless. It does sort of remove politics and arguing and, oh, this vendor said, oh, give us more time and you listen to them. And that vendor said, give us more time. And you said, no, it takes that subjectivity out of the equation. So I kind of get it. I just wish they hadn't shipped a proof of concept source and executable form to go along with it. So anybody, even if they don't understand how the vulnerability works, can now go and pound on people's doors. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that they're finding an interesting happy medium on the whole full disclosure versus coordinated disclosure. But the proof of concept code is certainly what I got hung up on as well. Although, it, in fairness, I think everybody likes to talk about a fight between Google and Microsoft. And if we actually look at the Project Zero webpage, there's bugs in pretty much products based on how they're used at Google, from what I can tell. I mean, there's bugs in Flash Player. There's lots of bugs in OS X. Uh, they, they gave away two Apple Zero Days uh, the same day as the Microsoft one, also including proof of concept code. And nobody wrote a blog about that. I guess, Chester, what it shows is we've sort of moved on from the should we have no disclosure versus responsible disclosure debate. To be honest, I'd rather be having the debate about responsible versus full disclosure because the idea of not disclosing things is just the same to me as sweeping data breaches under the carpet. doesn't benefit anybody because it means they might as well not have happened and everyone's got a false sense of security. So continuing on, uh, you know, we talk about tracking quite a bit here on the chat chat and certainly on Naked Security, the, the super cookies, all these different things. And a researcher by the name of uh, Sam Greenhalsh uh, from Radical Research in the UK has uh, published a blog post showing how a security feature known as HSTS or HTTP Strict Transport Security can actually be used to track you. So 
unfortunately one of these uh, double-edged swords, I guess, as it, as it were, you know, something designed to keep us safe. Uh, the purpose of HSTS is to remember that a website is using uh, TLS to encrypt it and to not go to an unencrypted version of it, but to automatically uh, go directly to the encrypted site instead. But now looks like this might be able to be used like a kind of a marketing cookie. Yes, that was the impression I got from this. And I guess anytime you introduce state into what is essentially a stateless protocol, HTTP, then there's that risk that each end knows something about the other from before. And my understanding is what he noticed in some browsers, I think it's Safari, which is, of course, the browser that you have to use on the iPad or the iPhone. When you clear all your web history and your browsing data and your cookies, it doesn't unremember these tags that a website sent back to you. So in other words, you may inadvertently, even though on, say, mobile Safari, you cleared your browsing history and cleared your cookies, you may end up going back to a website and uh, indicate that you're the same guy who did XYZ last time. Why doesn't the browser just default to going to the secure site to begin with? When, you know, when I go into Firefox and I say www.paypal.com, I kind of expect the browser to just try to do the best thing first. It seems to me if we know the best thing is to always connect encrypted to a website, why doesn't the browser just go to the encrypted site first? And then if that fails, fall back to an unencrypted one and perhaps warn me that I'm going to a site that may not be secure. Chester, it sounds as though what you're saying is that we should have something that's the other way around, like maybe HITS, HTTP Insecure Transport Security, which you have to affirm to a website if you're willing to accept an insecure connection with them. So in other words, you have to go out of your way to say, okay, I'm, I don't take security seriously, so I don't care if you give me the stuff unencrypted. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like the old opt-in versus opt-out debate all over again, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. And what I want to get away from is having to explain to my mom and dad what HTTPS is. They don't know. They don't care. They just have an expectation that whatever they're doing on the internet is as safe and private as it can be. And, and they don't know what to do about it. And, and I shouldn't have to tell them. And, and so I kind of like the idea that uh, we, we get more and more toward secure by default. So uh, another story here to kick off 2015 on the chat chat is related to Bitcoins. Uh, I know it's a, a rather popular topic amongst naked security readers and, and our listeners to, to discuss Bitcoins and Bitcoin security. And, uh, you know, I noticed that Bitcoins were quite cheap at the beginning of the year. I think as of around the time we're recording, they're about 270 US dollars if you're uh, looking to invest in Bitcoins, which I'm not suggesting that you do. And that uh, personally, uh, I'm not, I don't have a lot of confidence. They're very volatile. But if you're a gambler, you may want to look at it. But then I got to thinking, I wonder if this is related to a, you know, the blog article you wrote that, that I guess there's been some developments in the story around Mt. Gox, which was this large Japanese Bitcoin exchange that uh, had a bit of a kerfuffle last year. Yes, uh, I think it was in March, wasn't it, 2014, they suddenly announced, oh dear, we seem to have lost about 650,000 Bitcoins, which at the time were worth something like 800 US dollars each. They're not officially a bank in any sense, but they might as well be because they're holding all this effectively money on people's behalf. Uh, half a billion dollars suddenly vaporized. And uh, if memory serves, they they sort of blamed a cryptographic bug. It's a way that you can end up with two transactions that have the same hash. 
uh, which mean that you can then repudiate the transaction, even though it actually went through by saying, oh, look, there's been a mistake. And Mt. Gox hadn't coded to protect against this. It's called transaction malleability. That's the euphemism. And at the time, there were a number of people looking who said, you know, that's an awfully small explanation for an awfully big problem. That might account for some of the missing bitcoins, but not half a billion dollars worth of them. And a Japanese newspaper on New Year's Day actually pretty much went public and said, as far as we're concerned and as far as sources in the investigation are suggesting to us, we reckon 99% of this Mt. Gox lost bitcoins was inside a fraud. Well, that's a pretty interesting accusation. I mean, there, there is no protection when you're using bitcoins. I mean, I guess it's good to remind folks as well that, I mean, technically bitcoins aren't really a currency, although certainly they're used or talked about as if they were a currency. But because governments don't recognize them as currency, there's really no regulation. They don't fall underneath financial regulators in the United States or Canada or Great Britain or anywhere else. And they kind of don't have any rules. And there's no, you know, for like our American listeners, uh, you know, there's the FDIC or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation guarantees that $20,000 of your savings will be reimbursed to you if something were to happen to your bank. Um, there's no equivalent to that in Bitcoins. If, if you give your Bitcoins to someone to hold or to do something on your behalf as a proxy, you darn well better be sure there's someone you can trust, apparently. Yes, there is no 0800 number you can phone up uh, like you do with the credit card company and say, oh, I've lost my card or it's been stolen or I've this, there's this weird transaction. They go, OK, calm down, sir. We'll put a hold on all of that and look into it. Forget it. I guess an exchange could do that, but there's no regulatory reason why they're forced to. It's sort of like buying and selling lawnmowers. Well, I always consider Bitcoin a bit of a, uh, a Wild West kind of scenario, and this is just another reminder of that, I guess. It's a living thing that uh, has value because people imagine that it does. And while we were doing research for this story to show you what extremes this can be taken to, I noticed that the current market value or market cap of trading uh, in Dogecoin is worth about $16 million US. So there's even people out there that um, are willing to grant value to something as silly as Dogecoin. Then uh, I guess you have to figure out where you fall on the spectrum. Uh, personally, I think I'm going to stick with gold, US and Canadian dollars. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's just me. It does go to show that even in this world where there's an awful lot of cyber crookery going on, meaning that guys outside your network might get in and make a mess of it, even without any assistance from anybody inside, you still have to worry about the faithfulness, the trustworthiness, and the security protections in place for people inside the organization. As Mark and I spoke in, in one of the recent chat chats when you were on vacation, you know, if you're a small business and you go, hey, well, we're all a bit of a family here, so we all trust each other, so we've all got access to everything, we've all got right access everywhere, there are no secrets. Even if you are all trustworthy and you do all believe that no one else will go out to ruin the company, at least protect people from themselves, from making potentially egregious mistakes, which you could so easily prevent via things like access control, two-factor authentication, good review of logs. Like suddenly to realize that 650,000 bitcoins, there are only 13 million bitcoins in circulation because of how the cryptography works. 
strikes me as a, a little bit more than carelessness. It's sort of like, oh dear, we've just lost Manitoba. I wonder where it could have gone. Yeah, I wonder if this is going to come back to bite whomever is behind it, because, I mean, Bitcoins are very traceable, and it seems like those Bitcoins would be awful suspicious if they were now spent. Um, and, and if you've got that many of them, it's not like you can go to the Bitcoin launderer and throw them in the tumbler and have them come out the other side clean, can you? It may be, I guess what we need to make clear is that the fact that a Bitcoin shows up in the transaction chain doesn't mean that somebody in law enforcement can just go round your house and say, oh, you spent that Bitcoin on that day. But it does mean that if you're watching out for a Bitcoin, uh, then you can see when it gets spent. So I agree with you in terms of that traceability. If any of these Bitcoins that have gone missing that people are watching out for do reappear on the market, that would be very interesting news indeed. Yeah, precisely. Uh, they're, they're sort of tainted Bitcoins now, and, and it's uh, a lot easier for people to monitor the use of these Bitcoins than it would be, say, with traditional money. I mean, you can ask people to look for a certain serial number dollar bill all day long, but you're not likely to find it very easily. Whereas this transaction log is a public record and anybody can download it and look and you can bet that somebody's programmed a script to do precisely that. Well, I guess, Chester, there's the other angle, of course, that 650,000 Bitcoins now, uh, it's actually 2.5% of all the Bitcoins that can ever exist in the future because it's capped at around 21 million because of the way the calculations work. So, you know, maybe the long-term effect, if these Bitcoins are now out of circulation, would be to add a little bit of value to everything that's left by making them more scarce. Who can say? I'm glad I'm not an economist. <laughs> well, uh, I, I was glad uh, when I was on vacation, you mentioned my vacation uh, around New Year's, to see us have another Sophos puzzle. It's been a tradition we've done on the Naked Security site for, uh, I think, the entire time we've been Naked Security now. And how did it go? Did we, did we have a winner? Uh, did we have lots of winners? Uh, I, I saw lots of emails coming in from people trying to solve the puzzle. Yes, we did. We kept it deceptively simple. There was just one little ribbon image with 24 hexadecimal byte values in it. You had to break it into 32-bit words and then rotate the bits around. And the message that came out was, rotated, how many bits? So the answer was two uh, we had 17 people who solved correctly. The fastest uh, won a Naked Security t-shirt outright, and that was Tim Warriner. Very well done, Tim. He took an hour or so, and he had it cracked, and he used pen and paper. So he did not overanalyze and realized he could do it without having to sit down and write code. And I think that's what got him over the line. It just goes to show that sometimes automating things only speeds things up if the time taken to build the automation is very short. Uh, and then we have four other winners uh, that you can read about on Naked Security out of the remaining 16 people. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot more people that participate than even email us. I get people mentioning this frequently when I'm at conferences and, you know, places like Black Hat. Folks come up and say, oh, I love the puzzles. I always try to take a stab at it. And I don't usually message you about it or anything but just like people like noodling over a good crossword on a sunday afternoon they don't need to necessarily call their mom and say that they figured it out uh, i think people enjoy mulling over the puzzle nonetheless and chester there is meant to be a serious side it's just a reminder that even things that look abstruse and intractable at first sight once you know a couple of tricks that let you dig into the digits if you're not doing things like cryptography and security properly, 
you can actually make terrible blunders even in things that at first sight look perfectly secure. So that's the message we want to get across, uh, whilst, as you say, letting you have a little bit of intellectual fun. Well, I'd like to thank you for hosting the podcast while I was away, and, and I'd certainly like to thank your guests, John Shire and Mark Stockley, for filling in on somewhat short notice and a difficult time of the year. Uh, we do try to consistently deliver the chat chat to all of you so that you can stay up to date on the security news that you can use. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes, uh, via RSS, on the TuneIn app, or over at soundcloud.com slash Sophos Security. Until next time, stay secure.